Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. You can find out more by visiting johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We've got great guests for today's show, including William Yateman, research fellow at the Cato Institute. We'll also visit with Michael Cannon. He is the director of health studies at the Cato Institute. Brad Palumbo is a policy correspondent with the Foundation for Economic Education. We're talking about the CDC. Just proved Milton Friedman right. We'll find out why. And our U.S. Senator, Rick Scott, will be joining us. Uh, We'll be talking a little bit about inflation and out-of-control spending in Washington, D.C. It is August the 6th, and on this day in 1945, the United States became the first and only nation to use an atomic weaponry during the wartime when it dropped an atomic bomb on the Japanese city of Hiroshima. Approximately 80,000 people were killed as a direct result of the blast, another 35,000 injured. At least another 60,000 would be dead by the end of the year from the effects of the fallout. Through the dropping of the atomic bomb on Japan marked the end of World War II. Many historians argue that it also started the Cold War. Since 1940, the United States had been working on and developing an atomic weapon after having been warned that Nazi Germany was also conducting research into nuclear weapons. By the time the United States conducted the first successful test, that was a bomb that exploded in the desert of New Mexico in July 1945, Germany had already uh, been defeated. The war against Japan in the Pacific, however, continued to rage. President Harry S. Truman warned by some of his advisors that any attempt to invade Japan would result in horrific American casualties, ordered that the new weapon be used to bring the war to a speedy end. On August 6, 1945, the American bomber Enola Gay Uh, dropped a five-ton bomb over the Japanese city of Hiroshima, a blast equivalent to the power of 15,000 tons of TNT reduced four square miles of the city to ruins and immediately killed 80,000 folks. Uh, uh, Tens of thousands more died in the following weeks from wounds and radiation poisoning. Three days later, another bomb was dropped on the city of Nagasaki, killing nearly 40,000 more people. A few days later, Japan announced its surrender. On this day in 1945, an atomic bomb dropped on human beings. Unbelievable. I found this interesting. Emerald Robinson, the very credible reporter for Newsmax TV, posted on Twitter yesterday that the CEO CEO of Pfizer, Albert Borla, had had canceled his trip to Israel. Israel. You know why? Because he wasn't fully vaccinated. Isn't that ironic? Also this, 12 out of 13 countries on Johns Hopkins' list of the most vaccinated are currently listed by the CDC as high or very high in COVID-19 travel risk. Very high is Malta, United Arab Emirates, uh, Chile, Uruguay, Bahrain, and Mongolia. Uh, Also, Iceland, uh, Cater, Belgium, Canada, and Israel, they're high. Israel, my goodness. And then uh, low is Singapore. Also, Moderna called for a third shot of vaccine to protect against new strains of, vac- of the uh, virus. On the same day, the company posted a $4 billion second quarter profit on vaccine. Also very ironic. 
Richard Trumka, the powerful president of the AFL-CIO who rose from the coal mines of Pennsylvania to preside over one of the largest labor organizations in the world, died yesterday. He was only 72 years of age. No follow-up. I haven't seen anything on the cause of death. The Federation confirmed Trumka's death in a statement he had been AFL-CIO president since 2009 after serving as the organization's secretary-treasurer for 14 years. From his perch, he oversaw a federation with more than 12.5 million members and ushered in a more aggressive style of leadership. The labor movement, the AFL-CIO, and the nations lost a legend today, the AFL-CIO said. Richard Trumpka devoted his life to working people from his early days as the president of the United Mine Workers of America to his unparalleled leadership as the voice of America's labor movement. Further, further details of Trump's uh, death, Trumpka's death, include the cause and, and where he died, were not immediately available. Eulogies poured in to Trumpka's Democratic allies, from Democratic allies, in Washington. He was elected in 1982 as, at age 33 as the youngest president of the United Mine Workers of America, pledging that the then-troubled union shall rise again. Democrat uh, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia said he was heartbroken to learn of the death of his friend. Uh, Rich's story is the America story. He was the son and the grandson of Italian and Polish immigrants and began his career in coal mining. He never forgot where he came from. He dedicated the rest of his career to fighting for America's working men and women, Manchin said in his statement. So Trump could dead now at this point. That's a, the AFL-CIO is an amalgamation of, I think, over 100 unions, if, I, if I'm not mistaken, including all kinds of different uh, of unions. They don't really play a role in organizing as much as they do, just keeping things uh, in line. <clears throat> also call for resignation of people who are doing bad things in, as union heads. But aside from that, uh, pretty powerful union, 12.5 million members, although at one time at, the, at its peak was over 20 million members, AFL-CIO. The U.S. government is planning to reopen foreign travel to America again after the condition that it was uh, those arriving from a visit are vaccinated. In an exclusive from Reuters, the Biden administration is formalizing a plan that requires foreigners who plan to visit the United States to be vaccinated for entry. As it stands so far, Americans who want to leave the USA for Europe can already do so. Canada has an August the 9th date to open travel, while the United Kingdom has similarly relaxed restrictions starting last week, August 2nd. The outlet cited an official White House source who described that the administration is working on a system to reopen international travel. They're planning a phased approach that over time will mean, with limited exceptions, the foreign nationals traveling to the United States from all countries need to be vaccinated. This, of course, comes as the Biden border crisis presents a public health dilemma. His administration is planning to offer migrant COVID uh, vaccines as well. Amidst a record high number of incoming arrivals, the Delta variant is China reverting to a state of pandemic panic, and it has sparked a feud between the White House and Florida. But in the case of the latter, the border has put the Biden administration on the defense. Texas Governor Greg Abbott took uh, to Sean Hannity's show to gripe about the federal government's double standard in letting COVID-positive illegal immigrants into the country and, of course, uh, <clears throat> requiring vaccines for others. These issues have fueled the decline in approval ratings for Biden-Harris. As for how much the COVID vector of concern from migration has developed already, uh, Bill uh, Melligan of Fox News reported today that on that the city of McAllen, Texas, says the federal government has released over 7,000 COVID-positive migrants into the city since 
February, including over 1,500 new infected migrants in just last week alone. Local uh, state of uh, disaster in McAllen has been declared. It's uh, unconscionable that this would be going on. So how seriously can the Biden administration really be taking this COVID thing uh, it, while they're all, he's bleeping about getting people vaccinated when he's uh, allowing these affected people, infected, coming into the United States? 1,500 in one week in just one city, McAllen. The Congressional Budget Office has estimated Thursday that the bipartisan Senate infrastructure bill will add $256 billion to the deficit over the next decade, undercutting its backers' claims that spending has been offset. $250, that's a quarter of a trillion dollars. In uh, 2020, the deficit hit a record $3.1 trillion. So far in uh, 2021, the deficit is $2.2 trillion. The national debt is climbing to $29 trillion for the first time in U.S. history. The CBO estimated that the legislation formerly titled the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act would generate $50 billion in revenue and increase the deficit over the 21-2031 period. Enact, that's a decade, enacting uh, Senate Amendment 2137 to H.R. 3684 would decrease direct spending by $110 billion, increase revenues by $50 billion, increase discretionary spending by $415 billion, reads the report. On net, the legislation would add $256 billion to uh, projected deficits over that period. Federal uh, budget experts uh, previously told just the news that only $200 billion of the $550 billion in new spending uh, under the legislation will be paid for with offsets over the next decade. Mark Goldwein, Senior Vice President and Senior Policy Director for the Committee on Responsible Federal Budget, warned that the White House and the senators involved in crafting the bill were significantly overstating the offsets in the cost estimate of the bill. If you look at the all-COVID relief, yes, unemployment benefits for the American Rescue Plan cost $50 billion less than we thought, but unemployment benefits for the CARES Act cost over $100 billion more, he said in an interview just with Just the News. Basically, if you look at the numbers for the offsets, you should remove $53 billion for repurposing unemployment benefits, $67 billion for Spectrum auction sales, and about $160 billion for the repurposing COVID relief, he said. And the reason I remove these three things is all three of them are essentially taking credit for something that's already happened in the past. That's uh, government <laughs> uh, uh, accounting. <clears throat> So interesting. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Did do a great job. Give uh, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Take a look at the website. Give a call. Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with William Yateman, research fellow at the Cato Institute. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lula Bee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. 
Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. It's a new, refreshing social networking platform. You can download the app from the website, choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Brad Palumbo with the Foundation for Economic Education. Right now we have with us William Yateman. He is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. William, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. Always a pleasure, William. Tell us about the Cato Institute. You bet. Uh, we're a think tank here in Washington, D.C., and we're dedicated to advancing the ideals of free society at every level of government. Cato.org is the website, C-A-T-O.org. Well, it looks like things are going to come to a head here with the infrastructure bill. Can you give us an update? Indeed, at least one of the infrastructure bills. Um, so here we're talking about the $1.2 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill. And as I've noted before, um, $700 billion of that $1.2 trillion is locked in. Um, that's part of the periodic highway reauthorization. It's paid for by the gas taxes primarily and is distributed pursuant to a formula. Um, about $500 $50 billion of that $1.2 trillion um, is the fruits of this bipartisan negotiations between a group of senators in the White House and includes new spending. Um, now, the proponents of the bill are new spending on, on actual physical infrastructure like highways, broadband, and the like. Um, the proponents of the bill said it was fully paid for. Uh, to that end, they, they set forth uh, an array of budgeting gimmicks. Um, however, um, uh, that logic it was shot through this week by the Congressional Budget Office, which officially scored the bill, that is, calculated uh, whether or not it would uh, affect the budget or the deficit. 
Um, and they concluded that it would ultimately uh, count $256 billion, you know, a quarter trillion against the deficit. So the proponents of the bill said it was going to be fully paid for, that mm-hmm. $550 billion of new spending, infrastructure spending. Clearly, that's not the case. Nevertheless, um, the bill uh, retained its robust bipartisan support, and it looks as though this thing is going to pass with at least 17, perhaps as many as 20 Republican votes on Saturday, as soon as Saturday. Um, so, again, it, hasn't, it would ultimately have to pass the House of Representatives, too. And as we've discussed before, that's going to be a sticky wicket because the, there's this larger, quote-unquote, infrastructure package that has to be considered as well. But it looks as, so far that in the Senate this Saturday, this particular part of the saga that we've discussed for months um, will wrap up in the Senate. That is unbelievable. 17 GOP senators are going to vote for this thing. Is is the wall included, completing the wall on the Mexican border, is that included in the infrastructure bill? I do not believe so, um, but I actually do not know. I believe an amendment failed to that end, Yeah. um, um, but don't quote me on that. Uh, I will speak to your prior point about the GOP support. This seems to be a conscientious political decision by Senate GOP leadership, uh, uh, Senator McConnell in particular, that they don't want the label, the obstructionist label, heading into the next, uh, the 2022 uh, election. So, um, uh, as I've said before, and this is, um, I'm echoing here uh, Senator Johnson from Wisconsin, you know, we, we just spent $5.5 trillion on pandemic stimulus. Um, there's already $700 billion worth of physical infrastructure spending in the in the works, coming down the pike. That's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, you know, did we need any more, especially now that we know uh, that it was indeed budgeting gimmicks that were put forth to pay for it and that it, it will count against uh, the deficit about a quarter trillion dollars. You know, going to be speaking with uh, Senator Rick Scott later in the program, and I'm sure he's got a lot on his mind with regard to out-of-control spending in Washington, D.C., so I'm sure this topic will come up. It's just really unbelievable. Hey, and on top of that, we have this uh, the uh, $3.5 trillion package that's not bipartisan. It's uh, any, any developments in that regard? We don't. So uh, the, the Senate, pa- uh, Schumer's plan was to deal with the bipartisan package first and then to move to this $3.5 trillion Democrat-only package. Um, uh, there will be a procedural move on that. Saturday is expected before the Senate goes on its August recess. However, the meat and potatoes of that $3.5 trillion measure, the Senate Democrats aren't going to get to that till September. And as we've noted before, that's a huge question mark. I mean, uh, moderates in the Senate, like uh, Senator uh, Joe Manchin from West Virginia or Arizona Senator Sinema, aren't uh, reportedly aren't comfortable with that $3.5 trillion price tag, um, and, and rightly so, I should add. Um, uh, they've been sounding the alarm over inflation. Um, so there's going to, uh, uh, that is to say, there's a great deal of intra-party Democrat infighting um, that that will occur in September as they try, as the moderates and progressives try to hammer out this huge measure that, uh, as we've noted before, has everything under the sun. I mean, it, it's free college, it, it's a, a energy production quotas. I mean, it's just every possible progressive wish list item. Um, so that's going to be a, a, a upcoming political battle. And I should note this as well. 
that there is, uh, uh, again, there's some brinksmanship here. Um, uh, that is to say that the moderates are, are saying, well, we don't want to spend any more than is in the bipartisan package, and progressives saying, well, we, we want to spend at least $10 trillion. Um, that is, this whole thing may collapse. And I've got my fingers crossed that, that especially in the House, uh, um, we may see uh, 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 both these packages sort of collapse under the weight of political infighting in the Democrat Party. Yeah, because I believe Nancy Pelosi said, well, look, uh, we're not going to move forward with the, uh, the uh, bipartisan bill, $1.2 trillion, unless we pass the $3.5 trillion. So that looks like if, if that happens, if, if, and it sounds like there's some, some real difficult, some real roadblocks to the $3.5 trillion package in the Senate alone, uh, maybe it will collapse. The, so the, this, uh, the Speaker Pelosi's comments that you just cited, that's exactly the sort of brinksmanship I'm talking about, yeah. and, and uh, that's what gives me hope <laughs> that indeed they'll, they'll both fall apart. Absolutely. Uh, before I let you go, any comments about the extension of the eviction moratorium? It's, uh, it's an outrage. Uh, I'll point your listeners. Uh, the National Review has been doing some uh, excellent coverage of this, Charles Cook in particular. In a nutshell, uh, in a press conference, President Biden uh, effectively violated his constitutional oath to faithfully execute the law. Um, uh, last week, the administration said they did not have the authority to extend the eviction moratorium. They said the Supreme Court had made it clear that only Congress could do so. Um, a couple days later, uh, the administration found the authority. And in this press conference, President Biden said he basically conceded um, that this measure, this extension, is on shaky constitutional ground, but he justified it because it would, quote, buy time. Um, uh, the, and that's pretty cynical. <laughs> so for the president to say that uh, he is performing, his administration is performing a legal sleight of hand to buy time, um, that is uh, a troubling. Boy, these chickens are going to come home to roost, and there's somebody who's going to be out of pocket quite a bit of money. And I'm talking about landlords. Uh, I don't know how they're going to make them whole. It's just unbelievable. William Yeatman, again, research fellow with the Cato Institute. Cato.org is the website, C-A-T-O.org. William, always appreciate your commentary. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with uh, Michael Cannon. Michael is a... Uh, Director of Health Studies at the Cato Institute. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Luke Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate courtyard garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean dining room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples.
Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgoing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best and building a performing arts center in downtown Naples, 44,000 square feet. It's going to be terrific. And I hope you check out the website, golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with U.S. Senator Rick Scott. Right now we have with us Michael Cannon. He is the Director of Health Studies at the Cato Institute. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here, Bob. Thank you, Michael. So I thought that we should uh, focus a little bit on COVID and all the things that are going on right now with the Delta variant and so forth. Uh, any thoughts? Sure. So uh, COVID, unfortunately, is not behind us. We have developed highly effective vaccines that, that offer uh, serious protection against the virus, but there are variants of the virus that are spreading rapidly, particularly the Delta variant, and there's a possibility that the, uh, that the virus will mutate into other highly transmissible and maybe even more deadly variants. Uh, so the most important thing that we can be doing at this point in time is to vaccinate people so the virus cannot spread as quickly cannot do as much harm and cannot mutate as rapidly as it does when people are not vaccinated and do not have that sort of protection against the virus. And uh, the failure to vaccinate uh, more of the population, I think, is the, uh, is the biggest contributing factor to the spikes in deaths uh, and transmissions uh, of, of the virus, because most of the serious cases of COVID at this point are among those who have not vaccinated. All the, uh, the uh, number of cases, as, uh, as I understand it, there's uh, people who, I think the latest thing from the CDC is uh, both vaccinated and unvaccinated people can spread the virus, apparently, number one. And number two, uh, the virus, virus itself, the Delta variant I've heard is uh, more contagious, but not as virulent, perhaps, as the previous strain. I think those, uh, th that is correct. However, the uh, people who are vaccinated can get, they can contract COVID, they can get sick, they can transmit the virus, but they are less likely to do all of these things. Uh, certainly less likely to suffer a severe illness as a result of the virus. Mm. And so every little bit that we do to reduce uh, the transmission of the virus, the viral load in each patient who contracts it, 
uh, these, the more we do to reduce uh, these factors, the less often the virus is going to mutate and uh, the less likely it is to develop even more dangerous strains. Yeah. So uh, I would, uh, and I hear the, the president, everybody is saying, we've we got to get everybody vaccinated. What about uh, therapeutics? Why, where's the focus on therapeutics like uh, ivermectin and uh, hydroxychloroquine? And I think there's one other too, but apparently there's a cocktail that's just been approved by the FDA. Apparently people who contract it, it can, is very helpful. So a- any thoughts on that? So one hopes that that, uh, that, that process uh, speeds up. The FDA has never been known for, for its, speed in approving new therapeutics, uh, but those, uh, those therapeutics have not shown nearly the promise that the vaccines have. One hopes that they will. One hopes that, uh, they will, uh, uh, that someone will develop a cure, but the novel coronavirus is like the common cold and the flu in this way. Uh, uh, the, uh, the hopes for a, a complete cure for these illnesses is uh, they uh, it is not as likely uh, a, a method of or it is not cures do not offer as much hope as the vaccines do when it comes to saving lives. Yeah. One hopes that uh, they are going to be able to develop these uh, uh, some cures that. Uh, that would make vaccines unnecessary. But until that happens, vaccines are our best shot for yeah. saving lives and reducing the transmission of this disease. So I must say, Michael, that uh, there's a political side to this as well. And previously, uh, these things have been called, for example, hydroxychloroquine, it could kill you, it's going to make you sick, it doesn't do any good. I mean, <clears throat> all sounding very political. And, of course, if, if in fact there are developed uh, therapeutics that work, it uh, then does... I think would refute the need for an emergency's approval of the uh, vaccine. So uh, wouldn't there be some sort of a political or even the, uh, even the pharmaceutical companies trying to put the brakes on any kind of effective therapeutics? Uh, I don't think so. The pharmaceutical companies could uh, profit from therapeutics just as they could profit from vaccines. And you're right. Uh, there'd be much less pressure uh, for people to vaccinate if there were, uh, there were a, cure for COVID-19. There were therapeutics that would uh, have as, uh, as, as salutary an effect. Uh, and, uh, but until that time, yeah. you know, I think we are where we are. Yeah, we are. We are. So uh, what are next steps? And I mean, the other thing that I've heard is that, the, that this uh, Delta strain could actually uh, has already spiked and, and actually could be on the downturn at this point. Again, one hopes that that could be the case, but uh, given and and eventually it will be. Mm-hmm. However, the Delta variant uh, could mutate into other variants that uh, that give us a, another run for our money, mm-hmm. and uh, and so even when we hear news that particular variants are on the wane, that doesn't mean that this is over. Yeah, I mean, there's. Uh, did you you heard about the uh, what happened up in Cape Cod, uh, Cape Cod, Massachusetts, with uh, 400 and some people contracting COVID nineteen, and 74 uh, percent of them had been vaccinated. So some of them, some of them getting quite quite ill, in fact. So uh, you know, it just raises real suspicions of what's going on. Uh, 
I don't think it raises those suspicions because there are breakthrough infections among vaccinated people, but the numbers are clear that the uh, the severity of those infections uh, are are is is much lower than among unvaccinated people. Mm-hmm. They are less likely to develop severe symptoms. They are less likely to be hospitalized. They are less likely to die. And and in a nation of 330 million people, where you still where you have uh, a hundred. Uh, tens or hundreds of millions of people who have been vaccinated, you will find cases of uh, people who have been vaccinated going to the hospital and even dying. Yeah. Uh, but that, that does not change the fact that the data show that you are much safer uh, getting the vaccine. You are, much, you are much more likely to survive the illness if you do vaccinate. Yeah. Michael Canigan, uh, he is the Director of Health Studies at the Cato Institute. I must say I've had good friends. One guy uh, had some blood clots in his leg as a result a couple days after taking the vaccine and had to get some stents put in. I had another friend who had a stroke. Uh, (laughs) There's some dangers. I I just, at least in my little circle, I've I've um, some warning signals that suggest, hey, you got to think about this, maybe not jump into uh, follow the herd. So Michael Canigan, research fellow at the, uh, I should say, uh, director of health studies at the Cato Institute. Cato.org is the website, C-A-T-O.org. Michael, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Bob. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Brad Palumbo. He is a policy correspondent with the Foundation for Economic Education. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. Listen to the Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598 598- 3889, that's 598 3889, or send an email to bobharden at hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598 3889 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. 
Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. You can find out more by visiting thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Brad Palumbo. He's a policy correspondent with the Foundation for Economic Education. Right now, we have with us our U.S. Senator, Rick Scott. Senator Scott, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Um, it's great. So we we uh, worked late into the night last night and ultimately did not pass um, what they call the infrastructure bill, although they didn't kept saying it was paid for, and we found out yesterday the Congressional Budget Office said that it would add $256 billion to our national debt. I, I so, saw that. It's uh, you, You've got to be just, I, I just, uh, who's paying attention to, to the spending up there? It's just amazing the out-of-control spending that we have. You know what? First off, I like infrastructure, roads, bridges, airports, and seaports. As governor, in my years, we spent $85 billion, but we did it responsibly. We did it at the same time we cut the debt of the state by a third, and we cut taxes and fees 100 times. Up here, I mean, it's just it's frustrating because they act like, the Democrats act like money's free. There's never going to have inflation. They must not be buying any gas. I mean, look at the gas prices, look at food prices, look at used car prices. Every price is, for everything seems like it's way up, and it's caused by reckless spending, and they just keep wanting to do it. Democrats will not stop. Once if once this bill's done, whether it passes or not, the next thing they're going to do, they can do it with no Republican votes. They're going to pass a $5.5 trillion tax and spending spree. Yeah. Remember when they already did $1.9? Uh, I mean, is this a trillion? Make sure I get my numbers right. It's hard to keep track of all this. It's one. It's $5.5 trillion. They've already did $1.9 trillion in March, and now this bill that they're talking about, infrastructure, one which has very little to do with infrastructure, is $1.2 trillion. I mean, this is, this is, it's like, like this is real money. <laughs> Fascinating how much it is. Well, it's uh, $29 trillion, as I understand, is our uh, the level of our national debt at this point, and uh, well over 100%. You know, I, I just don't know how we're ever going to pay for this. Well, think about it this way. Every American family now owes about two hundred thirty-three thousand dollars. In uh, if you if you allocate the debt to everybody, mm-hmm. and so I mean that's like a by itself a mortgage, and this all happened mostly in the last twenty years. And so we've got to we've got to get our house in order. I did it when I was governor. We pay I paid down a third of the state debt, and we cut taxes. You did it by watching how you spend your money doing things responsibly, grow your economy. But up here, there's the Democrats have no focus on that. They're, they were trying a, rad, a radical redo of our entire uh, uh, you know, government, and, and our, they want to control our whole lives. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just fascinating. I've got a bill that would say we're not going to raise the debt ceiling. You know, the debt ceiling, uh, we're now at a time where we cannot borrow more money um, because <clears throat> we agreed that the debt ceiling would not go up after whenever the number was, July 31st. Well, the Democrats don't want to take responsibility for the debt ceiling. And so the I've got a bill that says is once debt's 100% of GDP, which pretty much is there now, any new bill that has deficit spending would require a two-thirds vote of the Senate, and uh, any stimulus money was, would be taken to pay down debt, and we'd fast-track any you know debt reduction ideas to 
to a vote on the Senate floor. So we've got to get control of this. It's just it's it's devastating to our families. And this in, inflation, it doesn't hurt the rich. The rich have assets. Their assets go up in value. The poor, the people on fixed income, their wages aren't going up. Right. And their food prices are. And I hear stories all across the state of people that are now struggling to put food on the table or can't fill up their gas tank. Uh, they're having to watch every dime now. You know, it's absolutely true. This uh, inflation is a regressive tax. Uh, all these all these things amount to really hurting the little guy, so to speak, as opposed to people who actually have some resources. I do want to back up, though, and get some clarification on something you said. You worked in late into the night last night, and uh, it didn't pass. Now, what are the implications of it didn't pass? Well, what um, what's happening is today we're not going to be doing anything because uh, there's a funeral of uh, Mike Inzi, a senator from Wyoming, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, recently passed away. So uh, we're we're having that today. So we won't be voting on anything, but we will um, we'll vote on the uh, infrastructure bill on Saturday. <coughs> we'll see if it passes. But their plan is whether it passes or not. Immediately after that, uh, <coughs> is to go to their 5.5 the Democrats 5.5 trillion dollar spending spree. So the um, and you know this. It, the reason we didn't do it yesterday is uh, the Democrats don't want to. Uh, they don't want to give us all of, all of our amendments. They don't want to vote on over over things because they know that what they're doing, the American public don't like, doesn't like. Yeah, there's got to be consequences at least at the polls sometime. So uh, uh, inflation. Oh, there will be. I mean, the if, you know I'm the chair of the National Republican Senatorial Committee, and so in that job we do polls. The public is rejected. They didn't. They didn't elect people to open the border and close our schools and shut down the Keystone Pipeline and and this is in, in bankrupt this country. That's not what people elected last uh, November. So the the Democrats have fifty it's a fifty fifty Senate and they're trying to ram everything through with fifty votes. That's not the way Senate's ever operated, but I mean we'll we'll see what happens and I believe uh, next November people are going to go to the polls and are going to say, you know, we're not electing people that bankrupt our country. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, the word on the street is that uh, Joe Manchin and Chris, Kirsten Cinema are going to resist uh, some sort of a bill that spends that amount of money or uh, requires, uh, or is not bipartisan. So let's hope that that, uh, that it dies, it collapses from that. That will be a first, just so you know. That we'd all be hopeful. Yeah. Hope springs eternal. Absolutely. Never uh, we did bring up inflation. Uh, any thoughts on the cause and effect here of inflation? Because this is really, if, you, if we have an economy that's growing at 3%, inflation's running at 5%, again, it's going to hurt the little guy. Well, it's, it's always caused by reckless government. Um, and so there's two things happening. Um, the federal government is spending way more than what we bring in. And the Democrats want to keep doing it. And it's not a little bit more, it's way more. Mm-hmm. Number two is the Federal Reserve is is just you know has dramatically increased the money supply. Um, I mean the, the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve now is eight trillion dollars. I mean they the the Federal Reserve is basically funding our deficits right now by 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 buying up our, our treasuries. I mean they every month they're buying treasuries, they're buying government backed bonds. And so those two things are causing uh, this inflation. But there's other things. I mean, you shut down the Keystone Pipeline, so you reduce the supply of oil and gas in this country. But you know, so we have to import it, which costs more. So, I mean, this is you know, this is just simply 
the Democrats don't understand that reckless government spending causes costs all of us money. Yeah, it's a shame. And uh, it was unfortunate. I mean, I know that you supported uh, President Trump when he first ran. In fact, I think maybe one of the first two uh, governors to uh, speak out for President Trump. I miss Make America Great Again. I miss legislation that is attempts to help Americans. And uh, it's historically, but which, which gives me an opportunity to really underscore what you accomplished as governor, as well as United States Senator, uh, Senator Scott. I just really appreciate appreciate the, the way that you created cover for uh, for us in Florida while uh, President Biden was uh, was in office, or President uh, Obama was in office, and uh, right. now what you're doing to those. So it's, it's got to be difficult up there uh, with the, the environment, but hopefully things will improve. Oh, I'm, I'm very optimistic. You know, what we did in Florida, I walked in with a $4 billion budget deficit. He said, I said, my first campaign, we get 700,000 jobs. We got 1.7 million jobs. Um, you know, so we, you can do it if you just, you, you just chip in every day, figure out, okay, what can we accomplish today and do it in a responsible manner? No different than what you have to do in your family and every family has to do. You have to live within your means. There's a lot of nice to haves that you don't get, right? That's just life. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can save up for it. We don't save up for anything at the federal level. Everything, everything is borrowed money. Yeah. They don't pre-fund their pension plan, nothing. I mean, this is the most fascinating uh, place, but I'm optimistic that if we if we keep talking about uh, the issues, we keep talking about we can't have all this debt. At some point, we will elect people that will give come together and live within our means and create a better environment for every family in this country. I certainly, from your lips to God's ear, Senator Scott, I really appreciate your coming on the show and uh, speaking with our listeners. Thanks so much for joining us. All right. Have a great day. You as as well. Thank you. All right. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Brad Palumbo. He is a policy correspondent with the Foundation for Economic Education. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. The dining scene in Naples is among the nation's finest. Get a first-hand experience with Naples Culinary Walks. Join a guided food walk with a terrific guide in a small group through elegant Naples neighborhoods known for destination restaurants. In three hours, you'll stop for small plates on your chosen tour. Dining walk choices include morning, afternoon, and evening offerings on 5th Avenue South, Downtown 3rd Street, Waterside, Galleria Shops at Vanderbilt, and more. Prices begin at only $46 a person, depending on the tour you select. To find out more and to make a reservation, visit NaplesCulinaryWalks.com. That's NaplesCulinaryWalks.com for a great value and a terrific dining experience. you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity, maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC 
goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. We have with us Brad Palumbo. He is the policy correspondent with the Foundation for Economic Education. Brad, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, good morning. Thanks. My pleasure, Brad. Tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education. It is uh, the oldest free market think tank in the United States. Uh, we mostly cover economics from the free market perspective, um, basically talking about how capitalism and free markets are superior to big government and socialism in just about every way. In every way, fee.org is the website, F-E-E.org. And I always like to remind our listeners that if you have a young person in your life, uh, high school or college age, make sure they have a chance to be exposed to this great organization. They do a terrific job. So, Brad, um, in one of your columns recently, and by the way, you write a lot of them, and they're great. Uh, uh, you proved uh, the CDC just proved Milton Friedman right again. Maybe you can tell us about it. Yeah, one of my favorite quotes from Milton Friedman, the Nobel Prize winning free market economist, is when he said, he said that um, nothing is so permanent as a temporary government program. And he said that decades ago, but I think there's no quote that has proven more prescient during the pandemic than that. I mean, think about all of the things they've done that were supposedly temporary or just short-term emergency measures that are now still in place or coming back in place over a year and a half later, whether it's mask restrictions or this, remember 15 days to slow the spread? Yeah. We're on day 500 and something. Yeah. So the latest thing that the government has done to prove Milton Friedman right is that the CDC just extended its supposedly temporary eviction moratorium for like the fourth time even though the policy is illegal and unconstitutional and pretty much insane yeah i think actually milton friedman uh wait we should talk a little bit about him but uh, he also said that uh, uh it's something to the effect that uh, you know it's always easier to spend other people's money and uh, that's exactly what you know the these uh and where does she get the authority to make a decision? Where the CDC is not, there? She's not an elected, elected official, and she's making these proclamations. The Supreme Court just said the only way this could happen is through the, an act of Congress. Yeah, this is lawlessness. Uh, the Supreme Court put the, the federal government on notice and said, you must let, let this expire unless you pass a law through Congress. And what they did anyway is these unelected bureaucrats, the CDC, who work for Biden, they work under Biden, so ultimately it can be traced back to him. But they said, oh, well, we'll just do it anyway. And it's pretty alarming because, at least with our politicians, right, our politicians generally are not the greatest. But we can vote for them, we can replace them, we, can, uh, we have accountability to them. 
but these unelected bureaucrats they're the deep state there is no accountability mm-hmm. right uh, and it's disturbing the cdc is supposed to be about scientific research and infectious disease how on earth do they have the authority to commandeer the entire national rental market and force landlords confiscate their property and force them to allow people to occupy it without payment it's as if they told grocery stores you have to let anyone come in take whatever food they want and leave without paying it's insanity and what how the cdc has the authority to do it is just mind-boggling yeah and i'm sure perhaps the uh, the image of uh, a rich guy owning a, a rental property it's not going to hurt him well you know sometimes we have people who uh, save up some money they invest a little extra capital they have in buying a uh, an extra home so they can rent it out and get some income and you know looking to afford to build their wealth and so forth you know, this is going to devastate a lot of small landowners. Oh, yeah. I've interviewed um, multiple landlords from my articles who talk about this. They're immigrants or working class people sure. or older people who have one rental property and it's their retirement income. Um, in fact, since I've written some columns on this, my email has been flooded with landlords and these are not ceos taking the time to write me out of their day these are everyday americans who have one or two rental properties or some people even just rent out a single room in their home yeah right and they they are being devastated by this because the government is basically confiscating their property without any payment and taking away a source of income they rely on it's one of the most disturbing things the government has done uh, throughout this pandemic, in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree with that. And uh, the landowner or landholder, the, the uh, person who owns the home that's rent- being rented out or apartment, uh, not only is not getting income, but has to sustain all the expenses, the heat, the electricity, the whatever it might be. So uh, this is going to uh, put a lot of people, Some I would imagine we're going to see some of these uh, homes uh, going into bankruptcy or going into uh, foreclosure. Yeah, and that's one of the more sinister things. Maybe I'm being a little cynical here, but you know who loves the eviction moratorium? The big banks, because they get to buy up a bunch of properties at foreclosures uh, for very cheap. So just like the lockdowns benefited big corporations like Amazon and destroyed small businesses, I think you're going to see something similar with these sweeping um, eviction moratoriums that it will help some of the big industries and tycoons at the expense of the mom and pop landlords. And you know what? The armies of lobbyists in Washington, D.C., they're probably happy with that. Yeah, unbelievable. So, Brad, let's just take a step back and uh, celebrate a little bit about Milton Friedman's contribution to economics and to society. He, he was a great, great man. He just died, a, what, a couple of years ago, I think. Uh, can, uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think he's great. I will say that um, for people out there, Free to Choose is one of his best books. Mm-hmm. The great thing about his books is that they are written in common everyday language like you or I would write, except much better. But um, uh, So it's not as if you're reading some dusty economics textbook. He writes about the real world and how the economy works and how the government works. Uh, from a perspective that just really perfectly explains why free markets always work better than big government. Uh, So Free to Choose in Capitalism and Freedom is his other book, and I think he's one of the most invaluable um, free market economists that we've we've had here in the U.S. 
You know, I would even say that uh, for a long time under FDR, there was almost no conservative or, or I've got to call it, classical liberal economist speaking out until Milton Friedman came along at the uh, Rose and Milton Friedman in the uh, Chicago School of Economics. And he really made a difference. I think he helped turn the tide a little bit towards at least having people listen to sensible ideas uh, on economics. Yeah, he did for sure. Um, he, you know, he founded entire schools of thought and people, many other people studied under him or were inspired by him. And it's great to think that between him and some others like Thomas Sowell, we really do have an intelligentsia that laid the foundation for us on our side to fight back against these ideas. Because uh, without that, we, I think, we, basically, I mean, the push for big government, it, it's like a, a train, right? And, and all, without a, a firm alternative and foundation, all we could do is try to slow it down rather than reverse the direction. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned Thomas Sowell, who went to the University of Chicago as a Marxist. <laughs> And came. I don't think he actually changed his thoughts until after he left, but it certainly had an imprint on uh, Thomas Sowell, one of the great con- contributors to modern society, in my opinion, but uh, had a big impact on him as well. Yeah, it did. Thomas Sowell, he's great. What a wonderful story about him, you know, going in as a Marxist. Uh, and it's interesting to me because I don't know if you know this about me, but I studied economics and I studied at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. I'm from Massachusetts originally. Uh-huh. And the University of Massachusetts Amherst has the unique <clears throat> distinction of being the only fully openly Marxist economics department in the United States. <laughs> How did you and, survive um, it, Brad? <laughs> right. A lot of the other economics departments in the U.S. have some Marxists on the staff, but most of them are progressive Keynesians. This one is the Marxist American College of Economics. And I will say, (laughs) I was in for quite the uh, experience studying there, but, but without having other resources, I used to read Milton Friedman, Thomas Sowell, I have their books on the shelf behind me, Right now, I used to read the Wall Street Journal. I used to read the fee and the Foundation for Economic Education. Without those, if all I had presented to me was these kind of far-left doctrines and theories, I don't know if I would have kind of found the the path that I ended up finding. That's a very interesting story, Brad. Thank you for sharing that. Again, Brad Palumbo, policy correspondent with the great Foundation for Economic Education. Again, the website is fee.org, F-E-E.org. Check it out. Brad, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, indeed. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. It was exciting for me. I hope you'll join us on Monday. Uh, Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com, will be joining us. We'll be talking about current global events. Larry Reed, the uh, president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education, will be with us. I'm also hopeful that Jim McTagg will join us as well. He is former uh, Washington bureau chief for uh, Barron's Magazine and author of several books. He's always interesting as well. I hope you make it a great day and weekend on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. <laughs>